0: You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Welcome, everyone, back to the Riverview Conversations podcast. Hello, my name is Reese, and across from me, we have Ryan.
1: You, thank you. You made my na- name sound very nice. I thought and you, you were very strong on the the Reese as well. That was.
0: It's, it's like um it's like you know how uh, mainstream news reporters quite often have their signature sign off Sandra Sully seven news <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe I should work that into this yeah, and yeah, I'll yeah. We'll, we'll figure out our new sign on and sign off yeah names. that'd be good What's happening Ryan uh,
1: not much we've we've both gotten back from having just a little bit of time off which has been nice.
0: Do you feel refreshed?
1: uh yeah somewhat uh, it was it's obviously those <laughs> that good per, huh. Been a bit horrible weather so we me and my wife went down south for a little mini baby moon but mm. the weather was um, pretty awful so yeah. we kind of just sat inside which wasn't so was bad I mean bleak. I'm an indoors creature anyway yes, so yes, how, is your, how is your how was
0: your break oh it sounds like very much the same you know C- trying to keep kids from bouncing off the walls inside mm. during the school holidays mm. but we got out and about August and I we hopped an hour on our bikes, and I think he was quite proud. One week we covered about thirty kilometres. Whoa, very! He nice. loved it. You don't have the um the tandem bike with him, do you? No, I don't have the tandem bike. <laughs> no, he's he's got his own. He he's he's quite a um he was an early uh, two wheeler. Mm, Grandpa very... got him on two wheels just after his fourth birthday. So he was, very impressive. He was uh, um he's he's all about it. I can't see any benefits of a tandem bike. Just going to say
1: it. What, yeah, I what's suppose. The point?
0: Well, because you're probably always going to have someone that's doing all the work, yeah, right? And just double the injury, really. And how are you <laughs> going to transport it? Yeah, it's going to be too wide to put yeah. on the back of your car. Yeah. Anyway, that's well. well the that's kind of the other... conversation for today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's hand and bite it's
1: done. No, uh, we are we're diving into a a big conversation, um, and we've titled it. A more Christ-like God, because it's the title of a book that we're going to lean into. But I thought, Reese, I'd just ask you a fun question. Speaking of, you know, um, Christ likeness and and, and being in the image of something, Reese, what? Who's your celebrity doppelganger? Who have have
0: people told you that you look like? Uh, Well, now that I don't have much hair, I've there's been a bit of Jason Statham. Oh, wow. There, hey, was not bad. Uh, the have, ladies love Statham. I have been, mis- I'm not quite as, I'm not quite as, um, uh, I'm not quite as muscly as him. A couple of Neither couple can of I in kick. the weight room. Did you know Jason Statham was a, a, a competitive diver? He dived for Great Britain at the Commonwealth Games. Is that and true? And he had hair. Wow! Wow! Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, uh, doppelganger, yeah, Jason Statham. Once upon a time, someone said I looked like Ben Affleck. To which I was like, No, surely not.
1: No, yeah, I don't see that.
0: Um, and then there there was a a, a a footballer who once upon a time I I got recognised for, but no. Who was that? His name was Wade McKinnon. Mm. He played rugby league in the early two thousands. There you go. So, no, but but no, no, no one else other than that. Mm. Mm. What about you? Have you have you got a
1: uh, Zach Gagler. <laughs> I've been Very told true. I look like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The celebrity uh, ganger No, wow. not really. I two people in my lifetime have told me they thought I look like Sebastian Vettel, who's a oh, German yeah, Formula yeah, One yeah. driver. Yeah, good. Which I I can see parts of, but not not fully. I mean, maybe if he's wearing his helmet, and you yeah, just yeah but no put sweats. on the same helmet
0: on, yeah. Um, but no, not. I can unique see. I can see why, look why they would why they would say that, but I'm I not sure. have German features. Oh, you have German heritage. Yeah, it's like a Mercedes, really. Wow. Very nice. BMW, a fine piece of engineering. That's right. That's what you are. Thank you, (laughs) Rex.
2: Now,
1: that's that's all we'll talk about in our own uh, lookalikes. But this uh, conversation uh, we're having today is one that I was really excited about. Um, We... Got to spend some time. Well, actually, you you were on leave at the time. Yeah, research. I was. I just, I just tapped out. No, that's that is fine. So I got to um, have a conversation with Brad Jersak, who is the author of a book called A More Christ-Like God. In fact, he's the author of a number of books. He's the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in Canada. And um, it was such a joy to get to just spend some time talking with him. Uh, he, he wrote this book. Uh, it would have been over five or six years ago I think Mm. so it's been around for a while and as I had been doing just random reading and and diving into some random theological kind of discussions on things this book had kept coming up again and again in other people's writings and so eventually I was like I should just read this book and um (laughs) I'm really glad I did because it, it had some really uh challenging, but awesome kind of discussions on the way that we view God and the way that we see God. And so it was a, an awesome joy just to get to spend some time with Brad. Now, apologies if the audio is a little off because, you know, when Reese is on leave, I'm left <laughs> to my own devices. So without further ado, uh, why don't you enjoy this chat I had with Brad? Well, hi Brad, thank you so much for joining with us here on the Riverview Church Conversations podcast. Such a joy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This is a pleasure. Well, before we begin our chat, um, we just introduce you a little bit to some of our listeners with you know, the, the generic credentials and bits and pieces, but would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Tell us who you are, what, what you're doing
3: with your life? Sure. Um, yeah. So my name's Brad. I live in Canada. I'm the Dean of Theology and Culture at uh, St. Stephen's University, and I'm one of the lecturers with the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice, which is an online certificate in peace studies. Hmm. Uh, I'm also married. I have three kids, and now I, just as of today, I have my second grandchild, so super excited about that. Very, very exciting. Can you tell us uh, just a little bit about your faith tradition and and things like that, Brent? I'd love to. Um, So... I'm old, so I've got to go quickly. <laughs> um, so in, I spent 20 years growing up in a Baptist church with wonderful Christian parents who taught me to love the Lord, to love the scriptures, to love prayer, uh, to love sharing my faith. And then I went off to college and it was, it was a bit more fundamentalist at the time. Mm. And uh, in fact, my mother would say, Bradley, you must remain open. <laughs> and because she could see me um, becoming a know-it-all, and um, and and by the time I was 22 and I had graduated there, I in fact did know it all, and certainly <laughs> thought so. And then, of course, um, that starts crumbling. The next, uh, I met my wife Eden there. Then I went off to seminary and, and her church, her home church, a little Mennonite church out in British Columbia called me. And I, w- I went there for 10 years as a youth and young adults pastor and a community outreach person. And so I learned the, the very Christ-centered ways of the Mennonites and mm-hmm. paid a lot of attention uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount. And then after that, we planted a church. I would call it small C charismatic. Um, it was very informal, uh, tiny church, you know, lead worship with an acoustic guitar and a djembe. But what ended up happening is we became a magnet for people with disabilities. And that was one third of the congregation. Wow! And their care workers, of course, brought them along. These were people in full-time care. And then as a result, the addicts started coming and people from recovery houses. And it, it was a glorious mess. So, I led that, or co-led it, with a friend named Brian West for 10 years, and then um, I stepped back and my wife became the pastor for the next five years while I did my PhD. Well, all that to say, uh, at some point during that era, I hooked up with a monk named Archbishop Lazar, who's been a mentor to me for the last 18 years, and ultimately led me into the Orthodox Church, where Hmm. I'm a monastery preacher at one of the, at, at All Saints of North America Monastery. So that's that's a fairly dramatic shift from Baptist yeah, to yeah. Mennonite to charismatic to Orthodox. But I've lived mm. and enjoyed all of those worlds. And I I think I still carry the best of all of them because I don't, mm. I'm not like the ex-smoker who hates the last place they were at, you know, and <laughs> torments those who were there. But uh, I, I do feel there was growth and gifts involved in that.
1: I feel like that allows you to have a, a wider perspective on, on on different views and traditions and practices, which which really adds to the tradition, right?
3: I think so. And I tried them on, you know. I really lived <laughs> these, yeah, these yeah. traditions and I, I'm grateful for for the people that that um mentored me through those all those years and eras.
2: Mm.
1: Can you tell us uh, over the last decade you've you've written a number of books you've written children's books you've written um, very uh, deep theological books um how did you how did you get into writing is that something you always wanted to do or you just kind of fell into it or
3: well I did have a dream of writing as a little kid and I promised mm. myself when I grew up I would write a book so i um, but, but I also didn't have anything to say. <laughs> And then what happened was, uh, let's see, through the 90s, I I started developing um, approaches to teaching people the very basics of hearing God's voice. And in fact, that they do hear his voice, but need to count what they're hearing and learn how to discern it. And I began to do um, uh, seminars on this with local churches. And out of that grew my seminar notes. And out of that Mm -hmm. grew a demand for a book. So that by the time I wrote my first book, uh, Can You Hear Me?, I was able to really write one chapter a week for 10 weeks and then uh, put it out into press. And it did very well because there's a hunger across the theological spectrum to know God's voice. So we had people Mm. from the Baptist churches all the way to Roman Catholic churches. Um, using it as training in terms of discernment awesome. and hearing the voice of God. So once I did that, then I, I got a taste for writing. And and the church I was at at the time, they were incredible about that. They just said, "Hey, look if you if you get in a flow, you just disappear, and we'll take care of things." Because awesome. um, we had a lot of good teachers and leaders in our church, so that mm-hmm. I could afford to do that.
1: Mm, it's awesome and obviously it's a it's a big difference when a book comes out of um, a demand for it you know like you said you've been teaching certain things and there was a hunger for for um, I guess a deeper dive into it and so being able to write something that adds value in that way rather than just you know selling books for the sake of it.
3: Yeah that's true and in fact I you know if people really want to understand what motivates me generally it's a pastoral mm. response to deep questions that congregations, adults, and even little children are asking in a pressing kind of way. And so um, my, my books are about my research and my stories in responding to those questions. And mm-hmm. I love to do that as I am a teacher by vocation. And so the best favor you can do a teacher is ask him a question, including mm-hmm. this interview. So it's mm-hmm. a huge favor to me. Mm, great uh well, it, well the book that
1: we wanted to spend a little bit of time kind of diving into today and talking about um was some of your your thoughts and ideas that have shaped the book a more christ-like god and uh, 20 of our listeners i'd so encourage you to get a copy of it and read it it's been super formational for me but wanted to just ask you brad what what is it that drove you to write this book? Because for me, so much of the insights actually come from why you wrote the book, not just what you say in the book. What was it that you were seeing? What were you witnessing? What, what caused you to write something like this?
3: Well, I'd say there was two big questions um, or maybe one question, but two people. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of those people was me. And uh, so I came to a point of crisis in 2008 where in our little church uh, we had a lot of tragedies throughout mm-hmm. that year. In fact, one after another after another, and until I had written down for my doctor thirty-five of the tragedies that had happened in this church. That was maybe wow. one hundred and fifty wow. people, including a lot of uh, overdose, death, overdose deaths, overdose um, deaths, suicides. We had we had an abduction. We had wow. a very gruesome murder. Uh, we had a lot of our precious people with disabilities die that year for various reasons, some mm. unnecessary. And and it, and it just got worse and worse and worse and still, uh, until I started to unravel. And so um, uh, that's why I stepped back and went and hid in my PhD studies <laughs> where I started asking these questions. Is God really good? If God is good, how does God work in this world? Mm. How does he participate in our lives in the face of tragedy? And so it was really the problem of suffering and evil and affliction that I was trying to work with and, and, and resolve for myself. Because for the first time in my life, I didn't trust God. Like literally, I'd never experienced that before. So that's uh, 2008. And um, wow. So this book didn't come out till 2015, I yeah, guess. Wow. That was the first big phase of my healing journey, and in some ways, the book is a testimony of how I came to conclude that, in fact, God is good, and that he does care, and that he does participate, but it won't be like I had thought. He couldn't be a genie in the bottle for me, who Mm -hmm. I could, you know, you rub the bottle the right way, and he'll do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that way. Um, So that was one issue and then the second one this would be a, a much greater uh, spectrum of people who have these false conceptions or false images of god that that have become so oppressive that people are walking away from jesus and i'm just like hang on a second if you're walking away from jesus because you think he's a punishing yeah. judge or some kind of tyrannical king or retributive a punisher, or if you think he's an absent, distant, silent landlord, or like the dad who leaves you and abandons the family, then you're going to be, then it will really, um, those conceptions of God will eventually lead you to resentment towards him and and ultimately leaving him. And so I, I wanted to say, wait, hang on a second. These are not the images of God that Christ revealed and so the book is, a lot of the book is about uh, revealing, revealing the nature of God through Jesus Christ, because he is called the image of the invisible God. Yeah. Uh, he's the one who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so wherever our conceptions of God, even in our theology or in our experience, are not Christ-like, then they're probably going to be toxic at some point, and we need to deal with that. So I was trying to. Mm,
1: it's awesome. And so throughout the book, essentially
3: you you begin to um,
1: I guess, suggest that God shouldn't be perceived of outside of that image that is represented in Jesus and most perfectly represented on the cross. Can you um I guess just expand on that? Why why is it that many of us have unchristlike views of God? I know that's an extremely large question, but where where do those unchrist-like Images of God come from. I know in the book you kind of expand on four common unChrist-like um, conceptions. You talk about things like the doting grandpa and the punitive judge and the deadbeat dad and the curious Santa Claus. Um, and, and I love all those images. But wh- where do they where do they come from? How have we become so attached to these conceptions of God that actually don't look anything like Christ?
3: Yet we consider ourselves Christ followers, Christians. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, three categories come to mind right away. So I would say the first category is is human nature. And this, mm-hmm. this means that um, if we go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, the very first time they stumble, what do they do? They form an image of God out of their own shame. So just as God created mm-hmm. Adam and Eve out of the dust and a rib, They create an image of God that they need to hide from. Mm. When had they ever, when had they ever experienced God as someone they needed to hide from? How did they come to that idea? Mm. And so, um, even when he gives them a loving parental warning in their shame, they turn it into something monstrous. And, and so human nature is like that. I think even from the time I was a little kid. When my mom, as a loving mom, told me, Bradley, do not touch the hot stove or it will burn you. Mm-hmm. And then I did it. What did I do? I went and hid. What? That, so, right, it, it's it, it's very ingrained in us that yeah. uh, mm-hmm. somehow to, to make these false images. I would add two more categories, though. Another is that uh, we develop it through the teaching we receive in early childhood. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of preaching that came through my town through the revivalists was all about Armageddon, Mm -hmm. uh, being left behind the Mm -hmm. great tribulation, and then of course, hellfire and damnation. And so out of those sermons as a little boy, I begin to fashion an image of God. Mm -hmm. And then I would say thirdly, and I've already discussed this in my own meltdown, our experiences then. Yeah. Um, from our experiences, we might make inferences. So, for example, a hurricane hits a city and thousands of people are killed. So, we're like, okay, well, if you think God causes everything mm. and that God is righteous, then what's going on there? Well, he must be punishing us. Okay, why is he punishing us? And now we've got to pick a scapegoat. Oh, it's probably the gays, you know, or <laughs> something like mm, that. You, yeah. you <laughs> pick some, some group and and. And but what what happened there? Or it can be a much more personal tragedy. So, for example, um, Charles Darwin, you know, uh, the great the great evolutionist. He didn't he didn't walk away from the faith because of evolution. That was not even a problem. Um, what he wa- the reason he walked away from his faith is because his daughter became very seriously ill and suffered a, a horrendous mm. fatal disease that just did him in. It's like. if God is is behind this, then I hate him, you know? And Mm. so we'll see that whether it's um, big tragedies or very personal ones to us, you can end up forming images of God that are not good. So what did we have there? We had human nature from the Adam and Eve Mm. story. We had... uh, Teaching. Teaching, indoctrination, we could call it, right? Mm. Um, And then... That can happen at home, that can happen in schools. For me, it happened in, in church and the revival meetings. And then finally that one where it's whether it's inferences from broad tragedies or personal tragedies. And mm. it's it seems natural and almost inevitable that we mm. will end up forming an unchristlike image of God. Good thing Jesus came. That's <laughs> that's right. That's right. And and so Jesus
1: came to show us a little bit what God is like. There's a line in the book that um I absolutely love it. I want to just read this and then ask you a little bit about it and, and maybe how we go about living it out, which is always the hard part. Um, sure. you, you write in the book, um, our false images of God can be overcome by a shift from biblical literate, literism to a return to Christ himself as our final authority. And um, for me, that, that line, Um, hits home because so often I've come to assume or we come to talk about the word of God being the pages of scripture themselves as opposed to the living word of God being Christ himself and he being the final point of authority for all things In all things come together in him. The the question I have then is, is how do we begin to move away from this? um, Of course, the the word, the scriptures are extremely important in all of this, but how do we make sure that they fit through a a Christocentric lens? They actually come um, and Christ becomes the final authority. How do we do that when um, so much of our revelation of Christ, of course we have experience, but a lot of our revelation of Christ comes
3: through the scriptures themselves. Can you just expand on that a little bit for us? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing we need to do is make this shift that, The Bible is not our final authority for faith and practice, even though many faith statements say that. The Bible itself does not claim that. What the Bible says is that Jesus is the word of God. Hmm. The Bible says that Christ himself will give us the spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit testifies concerning Jesus and that on the road to Emmaus, Christ says that the scriptures are about him. Mm -hmm. And that there, so in other words, he's the word of God and the scriptures are a faithful testimony pointing to him. And so ultimately, we have to ask how every scripture from Moses, the law and all the scriptures, Moses, uh, the prophets and all the scriptures. That's what Jesus says on the Emmaus way. That they all point to him, his passion, his resurrection, his gospel. And so I think what happens is we venture into the Bible And we we leave Jesus behind. (laughs) No good Jew would ever read the Bible without a rabbi. And we have one, and his name is Jesus. And that rabbi says, you are not welcome into those texts apart from me. Not only apart from Jesus being the point, but he's also the one who interprets them for us. And when he interprets them, the entire Bible becomes the New Testament. And this mm. is what Paul says. Uh, he says, look at, in 2 Corinthians 3, if you read these scriptures according to the letter, that's literalism, they are a ministry of condemnation. But if you have the veil removed from your heart and you behold the Lord there, mm. they become a ministry of reconciliation. And the early church saw this issue very clearly. They said, you know, think of the, uh God has given us, uh, it's like, It's like an image of a king made out of precious gems. And that king is Jesus. And the gems are the scriptures. And what Irenaeus says is, but the heretics have come along and they have dismantled the statue of the king that looks like Jesus. And they've reassembled the gems to look like a fox or a dog. And then they've said, there's your God. And so I talk about this in my forthcoming book, The More Christ-like Word, how we've done this. We've taken scriptures We've dismantled them. We no longer see them through a Christ-like shape of of Mm, uh, Jesus crucified and risen. And now, let's say, we'll take isolated gems. And then what the heretics would do is they come along and say, no, my way is right. See, look at the gem. It's right there. And they would give you all (laughs) the Bible verses. It's like, but the shape is wrong. Yeah, Jesus is the shape that gives form, that unveils the meaning of the scriptures ultimately. Mm. And sometimes it does that. Um in very positive ways, like by like movie trailers of Jesus through his uh, suffering in the Old Testament is a preview to the much greater suffering on the cross. Mm. Victory in the Old Testament, even dubious victories, as a shadow of the much greater victory of Christ, who doesn't need to kill anybody, or the horrendous injustices and betrayals you see in the Old Testament—they are shadows of the. Much worse betrayal of the Son of God by humanity, by Pilate, by Judas, by Herod, by Caiaphas. And so the, all of the scriptures then in the Old Testament are foreshadowing that, mm. but also say there's a negative side. And Paul talks about this in the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 10, that the scriptures are also loaded with cautionary tales, mm. negative images. And so when I read a, a passage like 1 Samuel 15 and the narrator says that God says to Samuel tell Saul to go massacre all mm. the Amalekites including their children and even the babies and you just like First of all, you're not welcome to that chapter without Jesus, who said it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I, and by the way, I'm God, (laughs) have come (laughs) that you would have life and have it to the full. So when you see the death dealer at work, then you can go, oh, um, that's not God. Well, then why is Samuel saying that? It's because he is a false image of God. But the narrator's saying, of course he is. The narrator is an extension of the character of Samuel. Hmm. And how do we know this? Because Jesus came. Hmm. And Jesus says things like, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. I'm telling you, love your enemies, pray for your enemies, bless your enemies. And we believe that, at least I do, That Jesus Christ is God, the son, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what, when he gets the final word, well, should I then cut out first Samuel 15 from my Bible? Mm. Absolutely not. It's a mirror. We put up the mirror and we say, look how we still do this. We still have Christians who think they need to go kill other people Mm. and they even do it in Jesus name. And, uh, and so this, it. The the authors really make he's not promoting genocide, he's critiquing it, mm. and he's critiquing it when we do it too. So mm. those are some of the principles I see. And um, and we use this when we teach children, and they're quite good at getting it. It's not mm. a big problem if you show them basic principles. John 10:10. 10, 10, it's mm. the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I've come that you'd have life. And then it begs the question, but then why does it say that in the Bible? Mm. <laughs> And uh, Pete Enns taught us this, because God let his children tell the story. And mm. letting his children tell the story means expressing their worldviews, their false conceptions. And then Jesus comes to set it right and to show us the Father as he is.
1: Mm. You mentioned uh, just before the the passage of scripture that would would tell us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think our assumption is that means that the way that we see him throughout the scriptures will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I've heard it said many times that, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but we we change. And we are in unique contexts. And our understanding and our revelation of him actually is different throughout time. And so at one point, God would tell us to um, return an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but then much later in Jesus, he would say, turn the other cheek. And so the question is, did God change or is he dealing with us where we're at um, contextually? And I, I feel like the, the hesitation for many people is, I guess you, you touched on it there, but, but what do we do with these other passages of scripture? What do we do when we see a, a perception of maybe a more wrathful God or a God that doesn't fit the image of. Of Jesus, you mentioned. You know, do we do we just kind of put that aside and never look at it, or like, how do we actually hold that really well, um, even in churches? Like, do we just not do we just not preach on those bits? Do we preach on them, but actually do them in, in a in a Christocentric view? How do we actually deal with these really problematic bits of scripture?
3: Yeah. Well, aren't we lucky <laughs> that the early church addressed that question and answered it very carefully? And so I'll just lay that out for you quickly. Mm. So there was a problem in the early church. There was a heretic named Marcion and Marcion read the Bible literally. And when he read the Bible, literally, he saw this problem. He's like, I'm seeing this God in the Old Testament (laughs) acting nothing like what Jesus showed us. Abba is like, no, it's, and it's like far more drastic than just God dealing with us in different contexts. Here's Mm, one for mm, you. mm. Um, A commandment that's in Deuteronomy, it says, when you go to a city, offer it peace. And if they accept your offer of peace, enslave them all. (laughs) If they don't accept your offer of peace, slaughter all the men, enslave the women and children. And if you see a woman you like, take her for a month, cut her hair off, cut her fingernails off, cut her toenails off, and take the clothes away from her that belong to her people. Have her for a month, and if after a month you still want her, marry her. If you don't want her, don't kill her. Just let her go. Are you telling me that in any context that that is moral or that the Abba revealed by Jesus could command that? And so I pressed my evangelical friends about it, my scholars, Hebrew scholars, Greek scholars, biblical sites, the other, I mean, the guys with the PhDs. They had no answer. And finally, I just said, I get it. You have no answer. I'm going to have to go elsewhere. And that's when I hooked up with the Orthodox Church, and they started showing me how already in the Gospel of John, in the Epistles of Paul, in the second century apologists, they begin to answer this question. How do you read the scriptures? So, you know, you think about the Psalms where it's praying that his enemy's babies would have their heads dashed against the stone. Mm-hmm. Really? Abba wants that? Um, so I guess you could believe that. But what I, what I don't want to do is pretend it's not there. And I don't want to do what Marcion did. Here's what Marcion did. He said, we must reject the Old Testament. We reject mm-hmm. that God and we're going to cut it out of our Bibles. I'm like, that's not what the first church did. Certainly not Jesus. Mm. Jesus said, you have to read these according to how they point to me. So here's how they did it. Very quickly, three layers. They'd say, first of all, on the first reading, you read for the author's intent. They called that the literal sense. It wasn't mm. literalism. It was just like, what does the author mean? What words mm. do he use? What grammar does he use? What symbols does he use? What genre does he use? What's his point? What does he think the book is about? But that's just the first reading. If you stop there, you're a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we get this heretic thrown around a lot, but I'm talking about in the early church, they would go, no, this is what an actual heretic is. Somebody who just reads the Bible literally, and, and you come to the conclusion that God is monstrous, So you either embrace the monster God or you reject them. It's like, no, you got to keep reading that. And they would say, that's just the orange peel. You, once the literal, the first reading is done, now you go into the heart of the orange for the juicy stuff and you do a second reading. The second reading is the moral reading. And the moral reading isn't moralism or legalism or whatever. The moral reading is specifically this. How does this text form me into a more Christ-like person? If you can't figure it out, then let it go. <laughs> you know, definitely don't preach on it. But this is what Paul means when he says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for, you know, teaching, mm. training, mm. righteousness, all for reproof and correction. All right. So I'm reading, I'm reading 1 Samuel 15, and it is a word of correction to all those who do violence in the name of God. It is a rejection of that because Samuel there says, the Lord says, I want obedience, not sacrifice. Jesus comes along and says, hang on, go learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, uh. And so that's the moral sense, but we're still not done because that we haven't talked about Jesus yet. And so they would say the third reading, the spiritual reading, uh, we could call it the typological or allegorical reading is in what way does this prefigure Jesus? Uh. And what you can't do is is a straight across. This means that kind of, yeah. Um, but but I'll give you an example. Um, where do we see Christ in the story of Samson? Well, at the end of the story, Samson grows his hair back. He's taken to the temple of the Philistines. He puts out his arms. He stretches out his arms, cross like, on the pillars, and causes the temple to crumble down on everyone. Well, is is this about going to people's temples and destroying the temple and killing the people inside? No, no, no. It's a it's a foreshadowing of the much greater victory of Christ when he stretches out his hands and he pushes down the gates of Hades and rescues all the those who are dead. And so instead of coming like Samson the death dealer, he turns the story on its head and becomes Christ the life giver, the one who descends into hell. And returns with a train mm. of captives in his wake. And so that, that would be how the early church consistently would read these kind of scriptures. So you've got the moral or sorry, literal, moral and spiritual, uh, readings. Uh, but again, um, until you get to the, that third one, you've not read the Bible as holy scripture. Mm. It's just ancient Near Eastern literature then.
1: Mm. Sounds like a lot of work, Brad. <laughs> I can I can hear a lot of people going, oh, wait! So you're just you're telling me there's not just one little meaning that just comes from an need to <laughs> dig into it. Where's the cheat sheet? You know?"
3: Yeah, and oh, by the way, there are, there is two cheat sheets. Um, so one cheat sheet is is a book called it's it's just really a sermon a, about a half hour sermon by Saint Melito of Sardis mm. called On Pascha, and there's a PDF of the whole sermon online. Mm. Right. And in there, he explains how he does it, um, how he reads from the Old Testament as types into the New Testament as gospel, hmm. and then he models it. And he gives you a whole bunch of examples, line after line, and it's very rhythmic. It would be like in a black church when the preacher gets preaching in a rhythm. This is how this sermon is, and it's this is a, a grand disciple of John. Um, And then the other one, another grand disciple, John Irenaeus, he writes a book Mm. called A Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching. And in Mm. that book, he he preaches the gospel over and over and over, but he only uses the Old Testament. And he's saying, this is how the apostles read the Bible. Mm. This is how they preached the gospel according to the scriptures. And um, so we've got two cheat sheets for people. (laughs) I mean... I guess some people want to be able to read it like a a comic book or toilet reading or something. Um, If, if, if we really have a high view of the Bible, then I think it deserves more than that. I think it requires even some training. I mean, you don't, I won't even hire someone to work on my driveway if they're, if they don't know what they're doing, much less expound sacred scripture, Mm. um, or, Talk about the mysteries of God, I and mean, maybe mm. it would be like it to be simpler. But how, where is that God? Is not working mm. for us very well.
1: Well, I think you you see that so often. It becomes quite dangerous when people begin to wield the Scriptures um, with you know faulty or false perceptions of of who God is. Um, that can actually be quite problematic in the long haul. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: can you? Can we just talk about like why? This is this is going to be another big question, but I like asking you big questions. Why does having a more Christ-like God matter? What what difference does it make to our lives? I mean, of course, there's um, immediate implications in, in viewing God through the the lens of Christ as revealed in in Jesus of Nazareth. But but why does this matter? Why does this matter to the world around us? Why does it matter to our own lives? To our our relationship with Him? Can you just expand on that a little?
3: Oh, man, that's such a good question, Ryan. It, it is a big question, but I, I think it has very specific outcomes. So uh, let's talk in two registers. So in the first register, how does it affect me? If I believe that God is an angry, retributive judge, I will flinch from him, I will hide from him, or I will do whatever I can to appease him through religious practice or whatever. (laughs) If I think he's abandoned me, if I think he's distant and silent, then then I'm going to despair of him and I won't trust him. I think that matters a lot to our Christian lives if we live in fear of God or if we live in distrust of God. When 1 John 4 has said, look at God is love Mm. and perfect love drives out fear. And if you want to know what perfect love looks like, look at the cross. The God who hung there is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. That completely changes not only my view of God, but my view of who I am. I'm now beloved. And if I'm his beloved, this changes how I live. And, and I'm set free by that love. And then, um, on a, on a broader scale, um, it's, it's really important Because it seems to be an anthropological fact that we end up becoming like the God we worship. We, we, in fact, we volunteer ourselves as his agent. And historically, what this has meant is that fundamentalists, whether Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu, all are guilty of this. When they have a conception of God that is violent and puritanical, so the the Puritans are those who think I need to purify the land of sin and sinners, and then you just pick who your sinners are, and you begin to do genocide. And this is this is our history. You know, Oliver Cromwell was a great Puritan soldier who quotes Joshua, and he said, "I'm the new Joshua," and they go and they commit genocide against the Irish Mm -hmm. Catholics. Then they um, then they overthrow. The king and set up a parliament, then he overthrows the parliament and basically he becomes the dictator. I mean, that kind of matters a lot then. Um, every, I, I think you could prove this, that every instance of Christian violence in history, whether it's, um, individual murder, lynching and murder of somebody, or whether it's on these colossal scales of the crusades, all of that is rooted in false images of God, yeah. Who we begin to imitate. So that's, but on the other hand, if you think God is love and that all he does is mercy and that the ways of justice are restorative, I become an agent of that. Blessed mm-hmm. are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. And uh, isn't it tragic that we took a beautiful word like peacemakers from Jesus and now the military regime's have fashioned handguns and missiles and bombs and called them peacemakers. Mm. They stole Jesus' words. Yeah. Wow. Well. To create violence in this world. Well, yeah. So there's a trickle down effect.
1: Mm. Mm. I, I, part of my, um, I guess, confusion when we're having some of these conversations is is why, why is this not. This like having a, a Christ-like view of God should all make sense. Why is this? Why is this an issue? Why is this? Um, I don't know if that even makes sense, but I, I'm trying to wrestle through this this idea of Christianity, our uh, uh, understandings of who God is, and, and when I think about it, and, and many people that come to faith early on very quickly pick this up, and like you said, children pick this up. We go, of course you know mm-hmm. jesus has said he's why is it that maybe further down the the road we we seem to bump up against this and and start to find problems with accepting a god who is, is it because the radical nature of his grace we we almost can't accept that god could be this good uh why do yeah. we
3: why do we bump up against that well and and when you say we can't accept that he would be this good we have to ask again why <laughs> yeah. so i would i i think um before I respond to that, let's just correct it already. Mm, Ephesians mm. chapter three, Paul says, I get on my knees, and I'm praying to the Father that that he would give you um, the Holy Spirit through whom alone you mm. will have supernatural capacities to glimpse that God is always higher, his love. Is always higher, wider, longer, mm. and deeper than you've ever conceived, that you could ever amass, ask or ever imagine. So what this does tell me is, he will always be better than we thought. He is always more loving than mm, we could. It's, it, in fact, if you can think of two versions of the gospel, you are required to go with the one that shows God to be more loving. I mean, that's what Ephesians 3 is basically saying. Um, well more than saying that insisting on it that becomes a criteria but here's the problem so uh, uh, maybe in broad strokes there's there was a a problem with interpretation and there was a problem with allegiance so in terms of interpretation what happened was the early church and the roman catholic church in fact they understood these layers of interpretation i was talking about about the literal moral and spiritual sense of the text but we got to the we got to modern modernity And we might say even that it started with Luther and extended all the way into the Enlightenment where we, where we began to, instead of using the ancient methods of interpretation of the people who wrote and gathered the books, we started saying, what if we used modern versions of interpretation that we use on books like Shakespeare? Yeah, let's do that. And so out of that, liberals came up with the critical historical theory of interpretation and evangelicals came up with the historical, grammatical, literal approach. Both sides are both just modernists. And, mm. and so the moment you take a modernist approach to interpreting the Bible, you're going to end up doing the literalist error that makes God into the monster. It's absolutely inevitable. So that's one problem. Um, a modern, modernist interpretation. That caused us to depart from the ancient ways. But I think the other and and more and worse one is actually a question of allegiance. So let's say um, in the Orthodox Church, we know that we know to interpret scripture that way. So then why was there so much violence even among Orthodox Christians in places like Serbia or Russia? Um, how did that happen? And and I I think it's quite clear that um no matter what the Bible says, it got trumped by nationalism, patriotism, mm. militarism, and so on. And so even, um, you know, July 4th weekend, there was a lot of debate in the United States about which churches were going to use their services to exalt Jesus and which ones were going to use to exalt America because the, the, um, the nationalist civil religion was a thin veneer of Jesus talk on top of it. Mm-hmm is is a competing religion. And so so right down the middle of some of these churches it's there's an allegiance issue is Jesus Christ lord and uh it's it's not just america uh, I can if I start quoting Jesus quoting Jesus from Matthew I can't get through chapter 1 uh, I mean chapter 5 the first Chapter of his Sermon on the Mount, without running into a problem with Christians with an allegiance issue. Mm-hmm. If they are conservative Christians, they will believe that that Jesus' stance on forgiveness compromises holiness. <laughs> and if they're progressives, they will believe that it is complicit with injustice. And this is a friend of mine. Has done this survey and a big uh, thousands of people in churches he's gone through. He's done the survey with them, and it was it was about eighty percent, whether you're they're right or left, conservative or progressive, uh-huh. Uh-huh. believed that Matthew five is already problematic. <laughs> I'm like, well, why are we calling ourselves Christians then? Like, mm-hmm. uh, so. I guess that's a despairing answer to your question.
1: No, it's great. It's great. I wonder if, um, to close our time together, if you could um, even just take a, a brief moment just to encourage some of our listeners to, um, it, you mentioned very early on in the book that God actually initiated the re-asking of the question, what is God really like? Yeah. And I, I wonder if you could just take a moment just to encourage people that maybe you're feeling um, a little hesitant about really diving into that question because of fear of what they might find because of um, they already like the image of God that they hold. Um, but, but encouraging us to dig deeper into the question, what is God really like? Um, and diving into the person, person of Jesus to discover that. Can you just give us something more encouragement in that?
3: <laughs> yeah. Let's bring it out of the despair and darkness. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, for those who, who think maybe the image of God I have is just fine. Just assess the fruit of it. And if mm. you're doing fine and, and you feel like the God you worship generates, um, loving, restorative ways that you're living in this world. And if you feel the peace and joy, uh, of knowing him, then like you're in great shape. Mm. But if you see bad fruit, uh, you might inquire about that. You could ask God this, um, God, because there is a God, <laughs> there is a real God. You could say, God, would you show me any lies that I believe about you, uh, that
2: yeah, well.
3: that that are active in me and creating bad fruit? Um, there's another group, though. I want to encourage, and there are those who are already asking the questions, but they're nervous about it. Is this okay? And I get a lot of people, probably every day asking me, like, I'm starting to ask these questions. Am I going to be struck by lightning? <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely not. I want you to think about the people who asked God the hardest questions in the Bible, Abraham,
2: mm.
3: Moses, David, these people who wrestle with God, Jacob, mm. they become God's best friends. Yeah. And I, yes, God loves everyone, but he doesn't have many confidants. And those who are his confidants were those who could kind of get in his face and challenge him and, mm. and including, including, um, Job, you know, and mm. yeah, Job repents in the end, but what's he repent of? A false image of God. Yeah, well. How did he discover that? By challenging what he thought he knew about God. And so I just want, I want to welcome people who are questioning that God is up for it and he, he may, be using your questions to draw you into deeper intimacy with him uh, because he would love it if you could trust him and Mm. he would love to dismantle any ways that create distrust.
1: That's awesome. Well, Brad Jersak, thank you so much for joining with us on the podcast today.
3: Thanks for having me, Ryan. It was great.
1: Well, wow. so how's that for a chat, Reese? You weren't you weren't there for that one, so we thought what we'd do is no, just I wasn't. spend a bit of time chatting about to a debrief. We, yeah, like a deep because it was honestly it was a bit un- not unusual, but um, it was even different for me because normally we we have our conversations together, mm. and so um, I feel like normally we actually have a bit of a natural debrief as we go. Yeah. So thoughts on the chat? What did you take out of it? I mean, Brad has some.
0: Um, amazing different perspectives on things. I found a lot of them very helpful. Look, if I reflect on it, the thing that I find that first comes to mind is the notion of, or the idea that we all have, it's almost like we project our own views onto God of what we think he should be like Mm. and is. Um, Our different impressions of what the things that he cares about, Mm. the things that he's interested in. It's almost like we put our own emphasis on the things that we gravitate towards mm. more. So much so that sometimes it almost seems like we're worshiping different gods or maybe the, the things that we think yeah. he's all yeah. about that's... are so different from a, from the next person. Mm. So um, that's stuck with me for quite a long time because I've been reading the book as well or listening to it on, on as an audio book. And um, I'm, it's almost like I'm hyper aware of that stuff now and, and almost trying to be a little more careful with what I think or say or not dance around a topic, but I'm more mindful of that in terms of like when I'm praying or interacting with people or talking about God and mm. the things that he might be up to. Yeah. Um, I'm like, hang on, he might be up to something different. I'm, I might be projecting something. And I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm being overly cautious at the moment. Maybe I'll just kind of slot back into a more uh-huh. helpful rhythm. But, um, but it's certainly provoking thought for me at the moment. And even the title of that book, yeah, A yeah. More Christ-like God, when I when you first told me about the book, I was like, Oh yeah, okay. And then I sat and I thought about the title and I was like, Wow, that title is a hectic title. Yeah, quite that's a ch- very, challenges a lot of very provocative. So yeah, that's 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 my first kind of thing that comes to mind. Mm, I feel like the something that I was just reminded as we were chatting is actually though the
1: simplicity of what Brad is suggesting is that you know, we see God most clearly when we just look at Jesus. Mm. Which as I mentioned through the chat I even had with him, it, it seems like that. That should be, you know, like as as faithful yeah, Christians. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of sure. course. But for whatever reason, we kind of pick up random tenets of God that are external to the person of of Jesus. And I think part of the continued questions that I have now, um, and actually Brad mentioned his his new book that's actually out now, called A More Christ-like Word. Probably the questions I have now is, okay, well, when we look at Jesus, that's that's really helpful that we see God. But um, obviously, so much of our understandings of Jesus come from the scriptures themselves, and 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 um, our Bibles and things like that. And so, how do we hold that well? Mm-hmm. That can be a little. So, I'm I'm actually kind of super keen to dive into his latest book and just check out some mm-hmm. of that stuff because I think that conversation then continues into other areas of life mm-hmm. as well.
0: I wonder if um, you may have asked the question, or it came out as like, how do you know if you're barking up the wrong tree, or if your impressions of um, God are right or you're on the right path mm. and he kind of hints at well if look at the fruit of yeah, yeah, yeah. your life or or faith or whatever it is and if there's good things coming from mm. it um, then yeah you probably are, you're doing mm. okay mm. Um, but if you're left with if you're kind of troubled or if your things are maybe not quite working or you've got a trail of blood behind you from interacting with other people then maybe there's some more work to be done so mm. that's that's also an interesting kind of metric because um, yeah like like we've discussed you could say god is like this you could list off a thousand things yeah But yeah. ultimately yeah. kind yeah. of how do you know
2: yeah.
1: Um, yeah yeah i think for me that was you know obviously that was kind of towards the end of the conversation but that that idea of fruit being an indicator as to where your beliefs and perceptions are sitting is, is actually really helpful I mean Jesus himself talks about you know you if you plant an apple tree don't expect oranges mm. to come out like you can tell you can tell by the fruit what's what's upstream mm. and so I think that's actually quite a helpful way of even thinking about it like is is the view I have of God actually resulting in a a life of of love Mm -hmm. and of hope and of joy and of all all the things that, I mean, we kind of see presented nice Mm -hmm. and clearly in in Jesus. Um, I think so often that's not the case. The view that we have of God is resulting in other... It's like the symptom thing, right? Like you go into the doctor and how do they tell what's actually going on with you? They actually look at the different symptoms and I wonder if it'd be good at being able to quickly diagnose the symptoms that we have that kind of come mm. from an upstream yeah. belief or perception of of God. Mm. Mm. What a chat. Really good. Really good. Yeah, it's, this is one of those ones where it's like a bit more chewing to do when I think. listen again. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, hey, what do we normally do at the end of the podcast? We talk about... We say uh, bye. <laughs> yeah, talk
0: about... Hey, if you... What do we say? It's something about emailing us? Yeah, podcast at riverviewchurch.com.au if you'd like to tell us where we've gone wrong <laughs> with our yeah, impressions yeah, yeah. of God. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, uh,
1: until next time, keep having conversations.